Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. I am Father Dylan Schrader. And I'm Kevin Clark. And I am Matthew Duganzik. The topic of this episode is divine impassibility. We will also discuss related divine attributes, such as simplicity and immutability. To get us started, I thought I would just say a few words about what impassibility means. It means the inability to suffer. Now, in the metaphysical sense, suffer here has a broader meaning than we usually use it in contemporary speech today. So it doesn't just mean the inability to experience negative emotions, the inability to experience pain, but in the broader sense, it means the inability to undergo, the inability to be affected by or to be the recipient of actions by another agent. So in the classically theistic view, God is said to be impassable. That is, God is not affected by or does not undergo or receive actions from other beings. So to get us started, Kevin, what are your thoughts on divine impassibility? Thank you, Father Schrader. I, I like your introduction. And, you know, I when I was a younger theologian, I, well, I should say, I, I really appreciate the uh, what Augustine does in retracting some of his works or clarifying some of his works. And, you know, I think this is a good opportunity for me to uh, clarify some of my, my own thought on this topic. Um, I would say in probably 2008, I, I wrote an article for a uh, Marian online magazine where I talk about Our Lady's mystical suffering, and that kind of was the inroad for me into this topic of whether or not God suffers. And, you know, to be clear, I was immediately re- repulsed by the, the process theologians who try to um, project human suffering onto the divinity. But at the same time, I I, I wanted to almost... Um, dismiss or 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 set aside these metaphysical distinctions that you just made and um and and try to i think with uh, more in a, a balthazarian way uh embrace the idea that that somehow god does suffer uh, with us and you know i w- one of the things that really drove this um and I even presented my my arguments in a in a in a colloquium at Franciscan University. I wrote a like a, a paper that was over fifty pages, and um, I I I regret the lack of theological nuance that I took for this topic. And um, but at the same time, I also really appreciated the sorts of things that Pope Benedict was saying, for example, in his book, uh, Behold the Pierced One, where he points to uh, St. Bernard, who says that God, uh, he says, um, uh, Deus non 
impasse, uh, Deus non impasse, or passibilis est said incompassibilis est. In other words, God is not passable, but he is compassionate. And so we're really wrestling with this idea of how do you keep these two ideas in tension of God's uh, impassibility on the divine level, the level of the divinity, but also his uh, his entering into our suffering, both on the cross, his suffering and death, and also even before that in salvation history, his hearing the cries of the taskmasters in Egypt, for example. Um, doesn't that suggest something of, of uh, in God, a capacity to suffer. And that was essentially what I tried to argue in that paper was that there was sort of a capacity, capacity to, uh, uh, for suffering in God. But I've come to recognize the beauty of, of the Thomistic tradition and really the, the philosophical tradition that there really would posit a change in God if we were to locate that in the divine nature. So anyway, that's just a little bit about my uh, journey through this topic over the past decade or so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that, I, 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 I think perhaps without writing 50 page papers on them, uh, a lot of people would feel similarly. And I think that many people today probably are of the opinion that God changes and definitely that God suffers. And while perhaps not recognizing the problem with saying that God changes, it does seem quite fitting to say that God suffers to many people precisely because they want to believe in a God who can sympathize with them. The God who does not suffer uh, would seem to be cold-hearted and um, indifferent. I remember teaching a group of undergraduate students uh, and I was trying to, who, who I was trying to explain some Christology to, and they quickly ended up in the position that Mary and not Christ should be considered an ideal human being because like Christ, she did not sin, but unlike Christ, she suffered. Well, suffered in the, in, 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 a, in a, well, that's, that, that's tricky. I don't want to start comparing Mary and Mary's experience with the Christ experience, but you see, they, they, they were so drawn to imperfection as being emblematic of humanity that they did not want to ascribe uh, lack of suffering to God. I think it's interesting you use the word imperfection there. That's exactly right. Classically, the reason for holding divine impassibility is that passibility is an imperfection. So when talking about God, we have to hold that God is impassable because God is pure actuality. He has no passive potency. So God can't be receiving or undergoing something in the way that we see in action and passion among creatures. However, when we think of our own human experience, especially as modern people, and think about things like care, concern, love, it seems to be an imperfection if you don't sympathize or if you aren't hurt by the suffering of another or you aren't affected by another. So psychologically, it's understandable why it would seem like an imperfection 
to describe impassibility to God. What we want to eliminate from our conception of God is imperfection. Uh, Michael Dodds, in his book, The Unchanging God of Love, talks about this. There are ways that the language both of changeability and of unchangeability connote perfections and imperfections. What we want to do is ascribe the perfections to God without the imperfections. We have to recognize that our concepts, both the concept of passability and the concept of impassibility, are not 100% adequate to God. God has perfections that go beyond what we can describe by those words. So whatever perfections we are ascribing to God when we say that God is impassable, those perfections would also not have the limitations that we associate with impassibility as we imagine it might be in human beings. So it would not have the limitation of being unloving or the limitation of being distant and so forth. Yeah, if I could just break it down, Father Schrader, I think to, to, to make it to make the, the points clear, the basic idea that you're getting at is that uh, change is properly understood as something that is one thing becoming something that it isn't. And change, if something is able to change, which is already kind of a misnomer because being able to change isn't really an ability. It's a characteristic of something that's incomplete because if you can change, what that means is that you are not what you are going to be. And if God is all that he is at once, then he doesn't change. Uh, he has every perfection that can be named. But the second point I think you're making, so that, like, therefore God is unchangeable and therefore impassable. The second point I think you're making is that, um, that even this description is incomplete because anytime we speak about God, we're at best speaking analogously. So even describing him as pure act is somehow an incomplete description, which means that it might imply when we say it, something about God, which isn't entirely true. And it seems to imply that God is uh, indifferent to the affairs of, of humanity when in fact he cares very much, but the manner in which he cares is different from the manner in which a human being would care. Yeah, and I think you can see how this issue theologically would come to the foreground after the, uh, the, the severity of the wars of the 20th century especially the, um, the, the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, I mean, I, I would recommend to, to anyone to read Night by Elie Wiesel. And, it were, and he writes from uh, a Jewish perspective, and he's, and by the time he's writing, become an atheist. But, you know, he, in the book, essentially argues because the evils that he experienced in um the concentration camps that that God was dead, that um, uh, God was was no more, and that was, of course would certainly imply an actual change in God. And so, and I think this is where the the process theologians come in, and they try to, in a way, almost uh, rescue God uh, from his standing far off. And they, try, they kind of double down on God's eminence in human suffering in such a way that uh, they assert that 
to suffer is God's nature, essentially. Um, so I think maybe, uh, Father, your your expertise in Latin, maybe could you take us a little bit uh, through what, uh, you know, it means to uh, suffer uh, in terms of what 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 the tradition means by by this word, maybe in a little bit more depth. Sure. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, just etymolo etymologically, yeah, impassibility or passibility comes from the Latin word pati, pati or pati, which is usually translated to suffer. However, one of the difficulties we face is that in English, the word suffer has changed its meaning a little bit over the years. Mm. Today, when we say suffer, we often mean the experience of evil, the experiential aspect of evil. Uh, in the older sense or in the broader sense, suffer simply means to allow or to undergo. It means to be the recipient of an action. So, for example, we talk about the passive voice in grammar. And we talk the about the passion of the Christ, which is his suffering. And we talk about a doctor's patient who is acted upon. Exactly. 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 So in Latin, it has both meanings. It has both meanings, uh, just like it does in English, although in English, the word suffer has become narrower in the way we normally use it. But we still have those those echoes of its former broader connotation. So in Aristotle's, uh, you know, uh, categories, for example, uh, one of the ways that things uh, can be categorized is in terms of action and passion. You know, something acts on another and something else is the recipient or undergoes that action, which is different from simply being able to predicate things truly or to form true propositions. So this is going to take us a little bit into the related but broader area of uh, the question about divine immutability. So for example, we can say truly that God, you know, hears our prayers or that God is the object of our worship. And so, and there's a sense in which we are doing something to God. We are praying to God. God is hearing us. God is listening to us. God is aware of what we're doing. He's the object of our worship and so forth. And we can form true propositions like that. But the question is, okay, metaphysically, is God receiving something from, from us? Is God undergoing something in in a way like a, like a creature undergoes something. So if I uh, light a candle, I'm acting on the candle, the candle is the patient or the recipient of the action, and maybe the wax begins to melt. Something is actually happening to this candle. So is something happening to God when things go on in the world? Is something happening to God in his divinity uh, when, when creatures act on each other or direct something to God? or when God is aware of what's going on in the world and so forth. Uh, the classical view is that, uh, no, actually, God is not undergoing the actions of anything else, uh, because that would imply that he has some kind of passive potency, some kind of ability to receive, and therefore would be changeable and would be imperfect. Uh, now, something that Matthew pointed out 
is, uh, well, what about God's caring or what about his compassion or sympathy? If we look at it in terms of changeability, uh, the classical view would be, you know, not that God isn't concerned with his creatures, but that God doesn't begin to be concerned with his creatures. God always is concerned with his creatures, so to speak. He doesn't go from a state of not caring about them to caring about them or from caring about them to caring about them more or less. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that unchangeability or impassibility uh, leads to a kind of distance or insensibility in uh, the psychological sense. But, uh, you know, and I, would, I guess I would say also, we talk about process theology that's come up a little bit and some of these things. Um, sometimes people want to approach theology from the perspective of simply saying, okay, well, let's leave behind the metaphysical and sort of classical baggage that we've accumulated and just, you know, maybe go back to the Bible. In the Bible, God is described as, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite interested in and in the world, and uh, he's reacting to things in the world, and he's remembering things, and he's feeling aggrieved at things, and so forth. So, some of that comes from the separation of classical metaphysics from the study of scripture and things like that as well. But also, I think, yeah, from the 20th century experience of suffering and from this modern you know, psychological concern that God not be far from us and that God not be, uh, in a sense, guilty of, of negligence. If God doesn't care about these things, if God is not affected by these things, he seems to not be good to modern people. So there's a lot of concerns that go into that there. I would, I, I, one of the things that we've been doing in this conversation so far has been to talk about what is at stake in the claim that God is impassable and what seems to be the problem in claiming that he is, why people are concerned to say that he isn't, and even though we say he isn't passable. And uh, I would say that to assuage these concerns, that God seems indifferent to human affairs, to our lives, is that if we're right, if the classical view is correct, then, then God is pure act, which means that he created out of a sheer act of gratuity. And so if he created us, it could only be, uh, it, 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 can't, it can't be out of selfishness. It can't be to fulfill any need of his. It can only be out of an act of sheer love. So you could not possibly have a more loving God than an impassable one, ironically speaking. Yes. I, I, I think it's also helpful if we're going to talk, uh, if we're going to frame the discussion in terms of what is at stake in the, in the claim that God is impassable, it's also helpful to ask what, would, what problems would an impassable God cause? What would be, what would be lost if we said that God was passable? Well, yeah, I think that's a very fair question. Uh, so I would, the, the first thing I would do is to say, you know, it's a question worth asking, but in general, we've been talking about what's at stake. However, the question should really be what is true? What is, it, what is the truth about God, sure. right? Because it's not our job as theologians to develop the kind of God we want. It's to talk about the God who really exists, the, the real God, 
So the question is, is God passable or impassable? Okay. But then the question of, well, what's at, what's at stake, right? Um, there's something very good about a God who is not made better by us, nor is he made worse by us. Yeah. Right? That God's goodness is so perfect that it's, it's beyond reproach and that it can't be diminished and it can't be increased. I think, I think Matthew's question is a good one, though, um, in that, you know, what is at stake is the economic question, right? You know, the, the question of the divine economy. If God is just like one of us, then somehow he also, if he's changeable, he somehow needs uh, someone to deliver him from his own evil. And so there's the, the, the salvific of economy of being taken up into a God who um who who suffers change it isn't quite the the soteriological beatitude that um, that maybe we thought we wanted and as father father white points out in his um chapter on the trinity uh, or on impassibility in the trinity uh um and, and he's quoting david bentley hart here that um uh that um, we we essentially lose a, a con a, the the contact with with the uh, redemptive act, and this was something that that the the fathers uh, repeatedly emphasized as well. I mean, this this is a very ancient problem. It not it doesn't just date to the twentieth century. Uh, the early church was dealing with this as well. In fact, one of the earliest heresies surrounding the question of divine suffering is known as patripassianism or in other words uh the father suffers and the idea was that you know the, the father suffers on the cross too and is related to sibelian modalism which conflated the names of the trinity into a um, modal or a uh one uh one per singular personed god um, but this was this was condemned, and the, fa the the fathers in the patristic era ended up settling on something of a theopascite uh, uh, formula that one of the Trinity has suffered in the flesh, such that you know in, in some way the Son, yes, died on the cross, suffered, uh, you know, experienced full human passions but not in his divine nature right and so there, there's this careful distinction between what the son undergoes uh economically uh through the hypostatic union of course as being united to a suffering human nature but also while remaining uh impassable divinity exactly so the, the real response to the soteriological problem is, is the Chalcedonian definition, or it's the Chalcedonian approach. God, the Son, redeems us through suffering, but he suffers as man and not as God. But the one who suffers, in fact, is God. But he suffers in his humanity. Uh, and to, so to, to broaden that a little bit, to say, well, what's at stake if, what, what, would we, what would we lose if we posited 
that God suffered or suffers in his divinity, well, one thing we would lose is precisely, you know, the, the, soteri the soteriological import of the incarnation and of Christ's passion as man. You know, why the incarnation? Uh, why the cross? If God is already suffering in his divinity, you know, uh, there's something very valuable in the fact that God becomes man in order to be able to suffer for us and in order to offer suffering in his humanity. He's, he saves us in a human way, in that way, and becomes God with us. Um, to broaden that even further, if God were passable in his divinity, then he would be, just as the process theologians say, part of some larger ongoing thing. He would be part of the world. He, and in a sense, we would have to conflate the existence of the world and the existence of God and end up with a kind of uh, pantheism or something. The distinction of God from the world, uh, I think, is very much involved in the idea of divine impassibility. Either that or we, we honestly kind of end up in a Mormon situation where God is himself a creature. Exactly. You know, yeah. In which case, what we're talking about is not God at all. Well, he might be the God of this universe, but what about the other universes, Father? <laughs> what about the other universes, right? Yeah, so, so I agree. So divine impassibility is very much, it's connected with a lot of other divine attributes in the traditional view. Uh, God's simplicity, for example, his immutability, his transcendence, these are all part and parcel. So if we lose impassibility among the divine attributes, I don't see how we can keep simplicity, immutability, transcendence. And if we lose those, what what is left of the divine nature? What What is left of God then? Yeah, and this is the first that simplicity has come up. So in, in what way does he lose simplicity if he suffers change? Well, that's a good question. And I, I think uh, the connection certainly can be shown. I think it takes maybe a few steps in there um, just to put it as, well, simply as comes to my mind right now, uh, the ability to undergo action, the ability, the, the, the possession of passive potency uh, implies the ability to change or to be changed, I should say. And that implies that within the being, there is something that can remain constant and something that would become different. And that implies the possession of, of at least metaphysical parts. Mm. And so that would, that would threaten uh, the notion of divine simplicity because change involves not just one thing ceasing to exist and something entirely different coming into existence, but one thing partly remaining the same and partly becoming different over time. And to do that, the thing has to have parts. There has to be a part of it that stays the same and a part of it that becomes different. I think it's interesting. Uh, it's, this point is slightly tangential, but I think related back to the greater whole. When, when Catholics, or specifically Thomists, talk about divine simplicity, I think it sounds weird to the modern ear because the modern ear is obsessed with complexity. 
And they yeah. like talking about the evolution in terms of complexity. And we're like, no, parts are bad. You want to have as few parts as possible. But the thing is that we're kind of looking at uh, the same thing from different angles. And like, metaphysically speaking, I would say, for example, that I'm actually more simple than a table, even though I have more parts. And the reason is because I'm more unified. I'm more one. And if you cut off my leg, it's going to be a big problem for me. But if you cut off a table's leg, it's actually no big deal. You can just like, put a baseball bat in there instead. So the point is that in saying that God is simple, we're not saying that he's dumb. We're not saying that he's unsophisticated. We're saying that God is, by what the scientists would mean, the most complex thing that could possibly exist, not because he's composed of parts, but because he is more ordered than anything else. More unified. More one. I think that's a helpful thing to point out, yeah, because modern people tend to think complexity is uh, better or higher. But there are also areas where the more abstract we become, the, the more we can see the beauty and simplicity. So, for example, say a mathematical uh, formula, maybe something used in physics that applies to more cases and more kinds of cases. So a, a, a grand unified theory right. or something. You right. know, so rather than having a bunch of individual formulas that apply to different cases, is something that applies to everything uh, has a greater unity right. in itself and a greater a greater beauty and a greater power. Really, a fr- there's a, I have a friend uh, who likes to say that all physicists are closet Platonists, or they're Platonists. They just don't know it because they're all looking for one thing. You know without realizing that. Yeah, and I, I think another um, another interesting angle here, especially with as it relates to what you mentioned earlier, Father, uh, regarding God as pure act, is uh, something that, that comes from a bit of a psychological turn in, in, in modernity toward the valuing of what we would call receptivity or vulnerability and and to i think a lot of people view this doctrine as denying something intrinsically good to god if we deny that god could receive or experience or um you know um reflect on as it were human experience and somehow grow or learn. And we see this all the time. And, you know, the Twitter verse where we, you know, someone will come along and, and talk about how Jesus learned from human beings and whatnot. And, and so this, this chance to suffer change or receive something into the Godhead, why would we deny that to God as, as something good? Well, that's a very good point. And I think part of, Part of that comes from the fact that, you know, we are looking at things from our own perspective and maybe modern people are too locked in to the anthropomorphic perspective uh, in one sense, because something can be a perfection in two ways. It can be a simple perfection, a perfection that it's always better to have than not to have, or it can be a perfection for a certain kind of thing. So there are things that are perfections. They're, They're good for human beings to have. Uh, but they would not be good for God to have or not good for even other kinds of creatures to have. You know, so for us, 
to be able to take to heart another person's misery or suffering as our own and actually kind of feel it. And that's a good thing. And that can move us to act, to do actions of mercy, acts of mercy, acts of compassion and things like that. And there would be something wrong with a human being that encountered the misery of another and, you know, was totally unmoved by it. But that doesn't automatically make it a perfection, simply speaking. And that's where a little bit of philosophical thought has to come in. Uh, We have to ask, you know, is something absolutely a good or is it good for certain kinds of things based on what they are? And, you know, we simply can't assume that God is the same kind of thing we are. So we have to ask, well, what would be good for God? And, And that gets us into the question of, well, the language that we use, as we've said, uh, you know, has connotations of perfection and imperfection. And so we want to be able to affirm the absolute perfections that we need to affirm of God without uh, implying the imperfections. And sometimes, therefore, it's better for us to, to use metaphorical language like the Bible does, because that's affirming perfections of God that we can only affirm by using metaphorical language, you know, like like, like, like uh, God you know, f- feels uh, the suffering of his people and takes it to heart and things like that. Uh, because if we didn't use that metaphorical language, then we would get the wrong impression of God and we would come away uh, thinking about God wrongly, just as we would think about God wrongly if we thought, well, God really is metaphysically experiencing things just like a human being. Yeah, I think that I think that one of the points you made is very uh, instructive because we would agree that there is something wrong with a human being who you know witnesses an atrocity and isn't moved by it. But the re- the reason has to, for that has to do with what Aquinas says about the human passions: are they good or evil? And morally speaking, they're not good or evil. They're only good or evil in relation to the will. And the reason why it's important for a person to be moved in a certain way. Uh, you know, in, in response to an atrocity, a person ought to be distressed is because that is indicative of a rightly ordered will. So that's the human mode of having a rightly ordered will. But for God, having his will ordered to the welfare of human beings and so on just looks different because he's not human. I think that's a great point. And I think this is an important case study for why we read scripture in the tradition and not scripture just by itself because it's really it can be very confusing to take up the bible on your own and try to figure out whether god suffers without the uh without the tradition backing you up for example um you know hosea 11 is is one of the go-to passages where um it looks like uh god suffers change where he he says it was I who took Ephraim, taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of compassion, with bands of love. And he, he goes on to talk about the betrayal. And it's almost like God turns within himself and says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? But then an, an interesting um, thing happens in, in the Bible. If we just keep reading the text will often resolve itself 
And we see right there where it looks like God's emotions are on full display after he says, my compassion grows warm and tender. He says, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. So, so even here where you see what looks like the um, passions of God, so to speak, on display, he emphasizes that he is, that he's not man. But the anthropomorphic language can be um, can be really confusing because it's our tendency to want to to project these things onto God. It's funny when I was uh, uh, reading Thomas Winandy's book, uh, Does God Suffer? Uh, back in 2008, I remember sitting in a Barnes and Noble and uh, getting through this text from, a, from for that paper I was writing. And this woman came up to me. And, and said, well, does he? And it took me a second to figure out what she was asking. And uh, because I was in my own world. And, uh, and then she said, does he suffer? Because I hope he does. Um, and, and it's just, you know, the, there's this, this tendency to want to relate to God in a completely human way and, and make him exactly like one of us. But as we pointed out, then salvation becomes tricky because how does he save himself? I don't know. I'm sorry. Rearticulate the end of the question there. Well, it, it, you know how how does God how does God save himself if he really is if he really does completely become one of us to the to the extent of abandoning his divine nature and, and changing his divine nature i mean he puts himself in in uh this is the problem of reading biblical um biblical anthropomorph anthropomorphism anthropomorphism too literally where we uh in, impose this kind of changing divinity and James, for example, in, in James 1.17, and this is a passage that Aquinas points to uh, several times in his treatment on this topic, James 1.17, uh, you know, for there is no shadow of change uh, in, in God. So, I don't know, I mean, it's more of a rhetorical question, but... Um, well, yeah, so that, I, I think it's a, that's a very good point. If God suffers in himself, that is, if he undergoes, in this case, the experience of evil, uh, what does that say about the nature of goodness? Well, it says that goodness is in its absolute form or in its highest form, something other than God himself. God could be a recipient of goodness, but he couldn't be goodness you know, uh, that's problematic. And that's what happens. God becomes part of the world. He becomes just one thing alongside other things. Uh, whereas in the classical view, God, God just is pure goodness, perfect goodness. He, he is his own goodness. And so if goodness experiences evil, then evil you know gets in and good becomes less good uh and that's a problem 
that's a problem. It gives it gives we don't want good to be less power. good. <laughs> well, evil evil gains evil evil wins in the end, unless goodness unless there is a goodness that is not subject to it. Right. Right. Are you saying that all goodness is subject to evil, including God? And that's supposed to make us feel better because we've brought God down into our misery rather than affirming that he's beyond it but can help us. And I guess that's, that, that's one of the problems with, I think, from a psychological perspective, one of the problems of the modern view is that we'd rather be miserable and have God be miserable with us than have God save us. Right. So it's, it sounds like there's something to the, um, the first objection that Aquinas deals with in the existence of God, right? If either of two contraries be infinite, then the existence of one would obliterate the existence of the other. And we actually do want goodness to be infinite. Otherwise, we have this kind of dualism at best. Or there's just a kind of weird cosmological theory where all things that exist for some reason end up fading into nothingness. Well, exactly. So the objection there puts good and evil on equal footing. Right. You know, they put them on the same level, just like if you have perfect light, there would be no darkness. But Aquinas's response to the objection does two things. It first of all reminds us that the divine goodness is not on the same level as evil in created things. And therefore there can be good and evil in creatures and the divine goodness is not impugned or affected by that. And then second, even the evil in creatures can be brought to a good purpose through divine providence. And I guess that's, that's, what we that's one of the things we lose if we really embrace the idea of divine passability. We also lose the idea of providence because we lose the idea of a God who can order the finite goods and evils that go on in the world to something ultimately good. Um, we lose the idea of a God who can share infinite goodness and infinite happiness with us because he only has finite goodness and finite happiness to offer. Uh, and we lose the idea that good can triumph in the end because evil can overcome any good, including the goodness of God. So, um, as a kind of, since, you know, we, we've, we've been going on about this for a while and obviously all of us think that God is impassable, but I think it's worth considering perhaps in closing why somebody might not think so. Uh, and, and one of the things I, I find that happens when we talk about these sorts of topics, whether it's divine impassibility or simplicity or whatever, is that once you have adopted the position, it kind of seems self-evident and then arguing yeah. just comes comes about trying to find implicit false premises in your interlocutor's argument. So like Father Dylan, for example, I remember uh, when you gave your talk at ACPA about uh, Sparkles the Unicorn and how God does not love Sparkles the Unicorn. And that seems really nasty on God's part. Why don't you love Sparkles the Unicorn? But the thing is, you, as you pointed out, uh, the, the presumption that God would love something that does not exist presumes that it could exist and that God simply chose not to make it exist. But that implies that it already has some kind of existence, and of course it doesn't, so God doesn't love it. And so, like, or, or, or you know, you could object to Aquinas' first way, 
and say that, uh, or, or even even like this, we want to say God is in, impassable, and therefore it's related to divine immutability. God is unchangeable, and He's impassable, and those two things go hand in hand. And an objection could be, well, you know, uh, uh, there was a time when the universe was not, and now the universe is, and so God has a relation to the universe, and before He didn't, so He underwent some change, right? And um, Augustine's objection to that kind of argument is, is brilliant. He says there's a difference between uh, willing a change and changing one's will. And God willed to create from all eternity. So it was never the case that God suddenly decided to create the universe. The plan has always been the same. And I, I don't know. So I that's that's kind of where I'm, I'm ending up with this. Like we, we can argue all we want that God is impassable. Uh, but what, what happens when people don't agree with it or if they don't care, I can't believe I was one time I was at uh, Kalamazoo for a medievalist conference and Richard Cross was there just trolling a bunch of Catholics because he thought it was funny. And one of them in exasperation just said, don't you care if God is, uh, immutable? And he just said, no. And I, 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 I think that maybe we shouldn't take that seriously or maybe we should, but I, I kind of wonder like what, what would be the main objections to considering the God impassable? Some reasons I could think of for arguing that God is passable would be first, everything in our experience undergoes change or is capable of receiving the actions of another in a metaphysical sense. So, so that seems to be a, a universal experience that we have and that the evidence of everything else around us falls into that. So why would we exempt God from that? Second, the Bible, which presents God as experiencing things uh, in a way similar to how, how creatures experience them, although on a higher level. Um, third would be the idea that if God isn't able to uh, receive or undergo things from creatures that he's somehow totally separated or isolated from them, which seems not to be the case. Uh, and then fourth would be, you know, probably more things connected with the question of immutability, such as, well, could God have not created? And if he could have not created, there seems to be a difference between the God who did create and the God who would not have created. And that seems to imply some kind of changeability in God. Um, and then this is not really a further reason, but just something to identify would be to say, look at the, look at the experience of Christians and look at the experience of holy people. And is it better for people, are people going to be better Christians if they start thinking of God as completely unmoved and unaffected by things in the world? Or are they going to become better Christians if they start thinking of God as, you know, deeply concerned and deeply affected by things in the world? So those are some reasons I could think of for holding to divine passability. Yeah. And then there's also the Trinitarian angle as well, in terms of the kenosis of the father pouring himself out in the uh the the the, the generation of the son and the sons in balthazar speaks of the trinitarian processions in in these ways and the um 
the kenosis of the sun upon the cross, the outpouring of the sun on the cross, um, his emptying, Balthazar doesn't want to um, isolate the father from that either, uh, or the Holy Spirit in the, in terms of the uh, giving life back to the son in the resurrection. So, you know, th this is, um, you know, it's it's become a, a kind of a a, a complicated uh, position over uh, recent decades, and there, you know, from process theology to Balthazar to um, you know, like Richard Cross or or others that you you mentioned, there are many reasons that people want to uh, assert d divine passibility, but. You know, I think at the at at the end of the day, <laughs> the Thomistic position is 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 the only one that's that it pr provides you with a stable God, a God who truly does exist as absolute goodness. Who who, um, you know, we look at this world. This world is just a sea of change all around us constantly. You know. Uh, whether it be climate change or we just look at ourselves and how our bodies change over the years, um, we we should want deliverance from that. We should we should want to ascend into um, some sort of state where we can be free from this constant change. And that was kind of what vexed me originally about the the idea of suffering in heaven. Um, some of the Marian apparitions uh, identifying uh, that Our Lady suffered because of sin or or that Our Lord was uh, gravely offended to the extent that he was suffering in himself uh, because of sin. But that, you know, that's a different issue because we're dealing with human nature um, divinized. But um, but we do, I, I want deliverance from... from uh, from change. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know. I kind of like my receding hairline. <laughs> <laughs> the deliverance, deliverance from change or deliverance from the imperfections associated with change. You know, the, the catechism begins by speaking about God who is perfectly uh, blessed in himself, you know, infinitely blessed in himself. And I think to me, at the, at the end of the day, that's what divine impassibility is about. It's that God is perfect goodness, and he is his own perfect beatitude, and that cannot be threatened in any way. Uh, God is not in danger of losing any of his happiness or any of his goodness, and that's the happiness and the goodness that he shares with us uh, through the gift of salvation. So... Uh, God's good becomes our good by participation. So uh, to me, that's that's great news, um, and that it's it's great news. There's something very 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 good and very beautiful about the fact that uh, God is not in danger of becoming any worse and uh, by anything that we do, and also doesn't become any better by anything we do. And I'll say finally that I think that the concern that God needs to suffer in the modern sense experience pain in order to be have authentic be authentically concerned about us or something really wanes in its efficacy when you just think about the timeline of heaven 
there's your existence on earth and then there's the rest of everything all eternity and it just it just becomes so short and if you think about heaven as a place where pache the marian apparitions people don't experience pain then you come to care less about it it's 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 you know if, if you stub your toe and it only hurts for a second, you wouldn't really care about it too much. But all of the pain that you experience in your life is but a second in comparison of the, in, of the, in comparison to the life to come. Amen. <laughs> Thank you to our listeners. This has been Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org.